Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation. We are continuing in our uh, in this uh, study of this, this rich unveiling by Christ and about Christ and His last words to the church, words intended to both comfort and challenge the church uh, while God's people wait for His soon return. Last time we began to look at this section in chapter 1 uh, from verse 9 down through verse 20 trying to get our minds around this initial and, and glorious vision of Jesus Christ and noticing how the Apostle John reacted to all that was going on here. In fact, this is uh, sort of how we broke this passage down uh, in, in a way viewing these verses through the lens of John's uh, responses. So let me just uh, read this uh, section for us. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, we'll pick it up here uh, in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the, trumpet, the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head And his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man." And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we're considering John's responses to all that he is seeing and all that he is hearing, and we've covered the first response, so we did that last Sunday, which was this, that John was overcome by majesty. He was overcome by majesty. John, the last living apostle on on a particular Sunday while in exile on the island of Patmos for his faith, is spiritually relocated that he might receive the revelations of this book. He hears behind him a a loud voice, the text says, like the sound of a trumpet. And so he spins around to find out who it is that is speaking, or or we might say to find out the source of this commission to write. But when he does... He is immediately blinded 
by a vision of the unveiled and risen Christ. Not necessarily a vision of Christ in his future glory, but a vision that depicts Jesus Christ in the present as the glorified Lord of the church. In other words, this is a vision of Christ's present ministry. And the sight of the Lord Jesus unveiled and unedited is so staggering that John can hardly describe his experience. In fact, he is so stunned and so overcome by majesty that he soon falls to the floor, the text says, as a dead man. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because he is seeing Jesus high and lifted up. He is seeing Jesus as one who is both commanding and demanding. And he is drawn in and he is being confronted with various aspects of Christ's person and work. And so last week we looked at these various aspects of Christ's person and work, Christ's supreme presence, his priestly ministry, his eternal nature, his piercing knowledge and omniscience, his purifying judgment, his authoritative word, his sovereign control, his faithful protection, and his radiant glory. And as we noted last week, this is not the Christ of consumer Christianity. This is not the Christ of the seeker-sensitive movement. And it's why I get a little, uh, you might say nervous, or maybe even just outright uh, disturbed when I see a picture of Jesus on the cover of Time or Life magazine at the checkout counter at the local grocery store. Because what they, what they represent um, and present about Christ is usually nothing like the portrait of Christ that we find in Revelation 1. In fact, the authors of those articles are typically analyzing and, and, and picking and stripping Christ of his deity and robbing Christ of his glory. Uh, they're editing Christ, right? They're deciding what parts they, they want to keep and what parts they want to edit out about the Lord Jesus, sort of leaving him, you might say, as a remarkable man, but still just a man, uh, just a historical a curiosity or maybe even a great moral example or some, some moral philosopher, a teacher of truth, but not the source of truth. And by the end of that magazine article, we are left with a Christ that is nowhere close to being qualified to be our Savior and worthy of our worship and allegiance. No miracles, a no virgin birth, no resurrection. So evidently, many people want Jesus, right? Because you've seen these, these articles, right? It's, it's not as if they just pop out there once every five years. It's like you're beginning to see more and more of these things at the newsstand. So evidently, many people want Jesus. They just don't want Jesus straight, right? They just don't want the Jesus of the Scriptures. They don't want the Jesus that John is presenting to us. That is why you can't market the Christ of the Scriptures. You can't market that Christ of the Scriptures who warrants worship, who demands obedience, who calls for repentance and exclusive trust. That Jesus cannot be marketed. He cannot be marketed, but he can be proclaimed, 
right? He can be declared. He can be, he can be presented, right? But men must adjust to Christ, not Christ adjusting to them. Now, not only that, but I think it's also important for us to realize that no one cares more about the health of the church than its founder and head, the Lord Jesus. In fact, it is Jesus' thoughts about the church that should reign supreme. Uh, these days, it seems that, that everyone has an opinion about the way that church should conduct itself in a culture that we admit is, is rapidly changing. And so we have high-profile uh, pastors and evangelical leaders that are stressing uh, across our land that, it, that in order for the church to remain relevant in the Western world, it must change. In fact, some of them would go so far as to say that unless the church does this, that the church will altogether cease to exist in, in Western society. And so their recommendation is that because uh, we're, not, uh, we're, we're losing a hearing with people, that we need to make some adaptations regarding Christ and regarding the gospel. And so they suggest these various changes, changes to the message itself, changes to uh, its method. And many times it's not so much the message as it is the way in which we conduct church and think about the local church in ministry. Of course, we see obvious things like changes in, in even music, uh, in what's going on in, in the church, uh, those church gatherings themselves, reconfiguring its meaning and what the scriptures have to say about Christ in the church. And so they, they beat this drum and, and, they, and they simply are, are saying that since people are not listening to us about this, we had better listen to them, right? So because the, ch- because the culture is not listening to Christians, it's not listening to the church, then the church needs to do a better job of listening to the culture and then tailoring our services to their particular tastes. That the church needs to emerge into something other than it is right now. But listen, there is only, there is really only one opinion that counts. There's only one opinion that counts when it comes to the church's future health and holiness. And that is Christ's opinion. That is Jesus' opinion regarding the church and body life. This past uh, Friday night, we went down to, uh, to see the Atlanta Braves. Uh, to see, we had not been down to, to the new uh, stadium. So we went down there. We were with our, uh, uh, our uh, daughter and, and son-in-law and Jeff and Betty Ann. Uh, they were playing the Giants. My son-in-law is a huge Giants Fan, and it was also happened to be May the Fourth. Be with you, night. Um, so very interesting combination of uh, Braves baseball and Cracker Jacks and lightsabers. Uh, a lot of things, a lot of things going on. It was sort of hard to sort it all out. But it was a beautiful night. Weather was great. Uh, seats were right there. Uh, we had we had good seats behind home plate. But having umpired baseball. Uh, in my youth, rather than actually play the sport, uh, because I think I played one, one season and then quit. I just was so bored by it. I was the kid they would stick out in the outfield, right? They was chasing the, the butterflies kind of thing. 
But rather than playing, I, uh, I got involved in umpiring as, as a teenager. My stepfather was uh, heavily involved in officiating various sports, and so I got into that. And so what happens, and I don't do this when I'm watching television, but if I'm actually at a game, and it happens with other sports too. I refereed uh, basketball, so it happens there. But sometimes I find myself paying closer attention or more attention to the umpires than I am to the players. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm watching the game, but I'm watching the umpires, I'm watching their movements, I'm watching the way they interact with the players, the consistency or maybe lack of consistency in their calls and so forth. Uh, after all, the, the statement is good, good, uh, good umpiring makes for good baseball, right? So, but that, but that reminds me of a, of a story involving the infamous Babe Ruth and home plate umpire Babe Pinelli. Uh, this is a, 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 a Pinelli was a gentleman that actually played in the major leagues and then went on to actually umpire. And it was in Pinelli's rook, rookie year as an umpire. Um, and, and even though he had been repeatedly or reportedly and repeatedly told not to call a strike against Babe Ruth, he ignored the advice. And one game when he was behind the plate and Babe Ruth uh, came to bat, a close pitch went by. Uh, at which Ruth did not swing, and Pinelli called him out on strikes. And at that point, Babe Ruth turned to the umpire and made, uh, you might call it a populist argument, inferring weight from raw numbers. And so he, Babe Ruth sort of bellows out and says to the umpire, there are 40,000 people here who know that that last one was a ball. Tomato head. All right, so... <laughs> So Pinelli hears that, uh, could have been tomato head, but Pinelli hears that, of course he doesn't, doesn't lose his cool, and he replies with assurance, and this is what he says, he says this to Babe, maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that counts. And listen, this, the same is true in the church, right? It's not about our opinion. It's not, it's not our place to decide what's best It's not our place to advise Jesus on how to make the call and what call to make. It is for us to adjust to Him, right? That's the calling. The calling is to have a a vision of Christ, to know about Christ, to know what Christ has done, to know how Christ relates to His church, and then for us to bring ourselves in line with Him. The head of the church is Christ, and and the body ought to do what the head tells it to do. So Jesus Christ, risen and reigning, uh, Jesus tells us about the church in the Gospels. We are given a description of the primitive church by Luke in the book of Acts. And then Christ speaks through his apostles in the epistles of the New Testament. And folks, what we need to know about the church, Jesus has fully supplied. And there may be no more clear, no more concise and comprehensive instruction regarding the church's life and ministry and work in the world than what we find in the second and third chapters of Revelation. Pastors, pundits, marketeers all have their opinions, but Christ's opinion is the only one at the end of the day that really matters. And he has a right to think and to say what he does. And he has much to say, as we'll discover in our study in the coming weeks in chapters 2 and 3. But for now, we need to be, as I said last time, we need to be captured by what captured John. 
And that begins with this vision of the ascended and the glorified Lord Jesus, or the Lord, we might say, the Lord behind the letters. The Lord behind the letters. Now, we've already considered various aspects of Christ's person uh, and his work, but let's add to that uh, two aspects of Christ's relationship to the churches which he is addressing. And this will sort of, I think, bring all of this, this, uh, this together for us. The first thing is his centrality. His centrality among the church. His centrality among the church. This is about Christ residing. This is about him being in a position both of intimacy and proximity. Again, there in verse 13 of chapter 1, you'll notice it says, And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Christ is and must always be at the heart of all of the affairs and advances of the church. In the middle. In the middle. That is where he is. Among the lampstands, or it could be some translations say, in the midst of the lampstands. It's actually the Greek term, uh, mesos. There's this, it's this idea of, of you, you might say, mixing or, or maybe mingling. And so Christ is, he, Christ is not them, right? He, he is distinct and he is separate from them, but he is with them, Right? He is there in their midst, or he is, you might say, in their presence. Sometimes it is translated as in the center. For example, in John chapter 8, it states, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and set her in the center, the mesas of the court. So you can, you can visualize that. It's very easy. These, these men come and they put her there and they're questioning Jesus so it can mean that. It can mean in the center. It can also be translated as in between, such as the case in John 19 when it speaks of Jesus being crucified. The text says there that he was crucified and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus, and the term here, messos, in between. So Jesus, there's these two men that are being crucified and Jesus there in between those two. So Christ is in the middle. He is in the midst, or you might say he is in the center of his churches. But he doesn't simply stand there. So Jesus isn't just simply standing there in the midst of his churches and twiddling his thumbs. No, Christ is, he's walking among the churches. In fact, you'll notice in Revelation 2 verse 1, Uh, It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. So there he is. He is, you, 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 you picture him there with them, walking among them, moving about, which which means, folks, that Christ may have risen, Christ may have ascended, but he is not absent. Christ is not absent. He is not passive, and he is not distant. He is active, or as I say, he's, he is imminent. He is near. He is front and center of the church's life in Asia Minor. Directing, defending, 
uh, disciplining at times his churches, patrolling and supervising his churches as the chief pastor of his people, moving through his church, ministering, trimming the lamps, doing his work of purification, applying wisdom, and so forth. Which again makes perfect sense when you consider what the book of Revelation is about. Remember, this book is not primarily about the Antichrist, right? It's about the Christ, right? It's primarily about Jesus Christ. This is a revelation, according to that opening line of the book, by him, or you might say, and about him. And this is what John is reminded of when he sees this grand vision of Jesus, that Jesus is not going to be sidelined. He is not going to be sidelined. He is Lord of the church. He is Lord of history. And as Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator of all things. He is before all things in whom all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So he must be front and center. Now, if you think about it, isn't that where God was among the old covenant people of God, the nation of Israel? If you think about the tabernacle, where do we find the tabernacle? Well, if you read Exodus chapter, chapters 25 to 28 or, or, or go to perhaps Numbers chapter 2, in those chapters, God details and dictates through Moses that the tabernacle is to be the center of the life of Israel. And all of the tribes are, are to be put on the four sides of the tabernacle. But the tabernacle was the focal point of the nation. Again, God wasn't going to allow himself to be pushed to the periphery. And it's no different with Christ and his church. Christ will not allow the church to indefinitely push him to the perimeter and out the door. He will deal with churches that do that, as we'll see in the coming weeks. So Christ must occupy the supreme place. And we might even say this, it is a... It is a dangerous thing not to give God his rightful place. In fact, you could go to 1 Samuel chapter 5, read about a situation in the life of Israel. We, we find in that particular passage that Israel has been defeated and that the Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant, that place where God would, would meet, with his, meet his people. And the Philistines are planning to use the Ark as some sort of... Um, you might say a lucky charm or some kind of a, a rabbit's foot that will bring them good fortune or to protect them from harm. But it all backfires when God visits the camp of the Philistines. And in that chapter in verse 11, notice what the leaders of the Philistine say about this. They say, they, they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place. Let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there and the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And so they say, let it return to its own place. Why? Because it is a dangerous thing when God gets displaced. And it's a dangerous thing as well when Jesus is not given his rightful position in 
the church. When, when individuals or families or congregations attempt to rob the Lord Jesus Christ of his glory. So this is so, so crucial that we recognize the centrality of Christ. Centrality of Christ. That reality that Christ is in the midst. Folks, I'm saying that if through this sermon series, if, if we just got that take, if we just pulled that takeaway, if we just realized that when we show up here to worship on Sunday, Christ is in the midst, right? It would, it would so help us to, to, to not be so like tunnel vision, right, when we come in to the church and we're thinking about our week and we're thinking about our needs and we're thinking about the things we have to run around and do, not only here, but in, even after we get through this morning. But to realize Christ is in the middle. Christ is in the midst of all that is going on. And he's greatly, greatly concerned. Greatly concerned about his church. Now the second aspect of Christ's relationship to the church is this. His control over the church. His control over the church. So we have Christ uh, residing and here we have Christ presiding. We have him being in a position of Authority. Now, we made reference to this last time in verse 16 of chapter 1. You'll note, in his right hand he held seven stars. And the seven stars are, the text says, seven uh, angels. It's the, ter- the Greek term angelos, or it can be translated as messengers, uh, perhaps leaders in the church or, or pastors or elders. Uh, and as I've already alluded to, I, I personally lean in that direction, that this is speaking about uh, a church leader who acts as a delegated representative of the church. You might say a kind of a, a sort of envoy or someone who fulfills an ambassador-like role. Uh, that, that is the way that the word is used in, in some other places in the New Testament uh, for example, Luke chapter 9, verse 52, or even in uh, James chapter 2, verse 25. And it could be that these envoys or these ambassadors of a local church, that they actually went to the island of Patmos to receive from John the book of the Revelation and then took it back to the churches of Asia and read it. And that is why Christ addresses each of the seven letters to the angel or messenger of the church in each particular city. So this is what I believe is meant, at least in this particular context, uh, by this term angelos. And there are, again, several reasons uh, I have for holding that view uh, and sort of leaning that way. As I mentioned, the word can be translated as a human messenger and, uh, rather than a spiritual being. Uh, also, think about this. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible are angels ever given charge over the church. In fact, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, who is accountable to the risen Christ for the welfare of the church? Well, that text tells us that it's, it's the elders, it's the, it's the overseers, Uh, of the church, the pastor teachers. They are the ones who will give an account for the ones under their charge, which is scary business. That's scary business. Uh, We think a lot about that. (laughs) We think a lot about that day of accounting, that the elders of this church will stand before the Lord and give an account of that stewardship. 
And if you do take this to mean the seven leaders who are representatives of the churches, by implication then, Christ not only holds the leaders in his hand, but he has the churches themselves in his hand. He is concerned about the welfare of his people, which presents a beautiful picture. Jesus is not only the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he is also the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, the right hand, as it's used in Scripture, speaks of God's power, of God's authority, his ability to preserve, his ability to deliver. So the beautiful picture here is that Christ owns the church. He has redeemed it with his blood. He possesses it and holds it precious. He is its sovereign sustainer. And at no time, folks, at no time does the church ever slip from his grip. Which which would have been music to the ears of Christians when being pummeled and persecuted as many of these believers were. I mentioned this, that at this time in the Roman Empire, that the heat and the pressure were being turned up. But Christ reminds the church, I am in your midst. I hold you in my right hand. I will defend my people. I will provide for my people. So you see his centrality. You see his control. That is, folks, that is, that is why we sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And we can say that as believers, but we can say that corporately, can't we? As a family, as a congregation, right? As a flock, we can say that very same thing. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck the church from his hand. It is a wonderful thing to be in the grip of God's grace. Now, John is taking all of this in, but it's almost too much to bear. I mean, think about, think about this. Think about the solar eclipse uh, that, that we uh, experienced last August. How many, how, many of you just, how many of you participated in that? Okay, you're, you're aware of this, right? This was the, this was the talk for, for days and for weeks, right? I mean, for days before it happened, we kept hearing this warning. Like every time you turn on the news, you hear this warning about not looking, don't look directly at it, right? I mean, or, and then, then this one, there was, be careful of the fake glasses, right? Like you need to make sure that you have the goggles that have been approved, right? Because evidently there were some people that were really cashing in on, on making some pretty cheap, uh, unapproved, uh, unofficial goggles. And so they're, they're, they're hammering us with this stuff in advance, telling us, be careful when you look at it, make sure you got the right kind of glasses and wear them. But listen, this was nothing compared to the brilliance and the power that John saw. Nothing compared to that. And how did he respond? Verse 17, he fell at the feet of his Lord like a dead man. How instructive for us. The church today is all about relevance, but not much about reverence. 
Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and he shall, he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Psalm 19.9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote in Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Which is really just a, it's a, it's a Hebrew parallelism. So the, what he's saying is that the fear of the Lord is the knowledge of the Holy One. Or you could state it this way, to know God is to fear God. To know Him is to fear Him. But the fear of God has in large part left the church. Where is the sense of God's majesty? You remember the account in Luke 5 when Jesus got into Peter's boat and told him to put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And and in that passage, of course, uh, reluctantly, Peter does that. But the outcome of all this is that the, he has to call his friends over and they fill up both vessels with this great catch. And it says in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement, verse 9, had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. That is what happens. That is what happens when we come face to face with the God-man, when we see his deity, and then we sense our depravity. And that is exactly what happened in the life of John. When he saw Christ's deity, he became aware of his depravity. When he saw Christ's splendor, he became aware of his own sinfulness. When he saw Christ's loftiness, he became aware of his own lowliness. What in the world is going on in the evangelical church today. Have we forgotten the danger that we're in? When John saw the majesty of the Savior, he fell at his feet like a dead man. There was no barking. There was no, no laughing like at, this, at some of these, uh, uh, these revivals. Uh, There were no ushers gently letting John down to the ground. No, this this is fear, folks. This is is trembling. This is what C.S. Lewis was getting at in in that scene in The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe when Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan is a great lion. Susan is surprised since she assumed Aslan was a man, and and so she tells Mr. Beaver, "I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Beaver, Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king. And don't forget, this is John the Beloved, right? This is the one who had the most intimate fellowship familiarity with Jesus. This is the man who had reclined upon Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, and yet when he saw the glorified Christ, he did not go up to Jesus and hug him. He did not go up and give him a high five. He did not slap him on the back and shake his hand. He didn't even speak. He just fell down on his face, overcome by majesty. But that wasn't John's only response. 
Secondly, John was overwhelmed by mercy. Notice what happened next in verse 17. It says, And he, Christ, placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. So here he is prostrate, not even willing to look up. And then there's this wonderful twist. Because the voice, the text says this, this voice of many waters says, Don't be afraid. And John is reminded in that moment that the great I am is also the gracious I am. That is to say, Jesus didn't appear to John for the purpose of scaring John to death. He appeared to John to embolden him and to assure him through the unveiling of his own power and majesty that all was well and that the little flock of Christ, though attacked by the wolves of the world and not always faithful to him, was still under the watchful eye and the care of the good and chief shepherd. So the purpose of the vision, as glorious and threatening as it was, was that the one who stood in the midst of the churches was with them and ultimately for them. Again, saints were losing their lives, and persecution was on the rise, which is why he would write to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10, and say, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Christ is reassuring John, and he is reassuring his churches that all of this power, all of this glory is to the benefit of my people. It's for their good. So death death stalked the early church. They were small, they were frightened, they were besieged, but Christ wanted them to be overwhelmed, not by their circumstances, but by this vision of Himself. And so he says, stop fearing. Stop fearing. And what is the basis of that comfort that Christ gave? Well, notice these self-claims. Notice what Christ says here. He begins with this one, I am. He just starts out, I am. Uh, in the Greek, it's ego eimi, I am, which would have immediately caught John's attention and strengthened his heart. Why? Well, not simply because this is that divine name, right, that God chose for himself that signifies his eternality and his self-sufficiency and his glorious redemption. When God says in the Old Testament, I am who I am, right? I am the I am. It wasn't simply that, but it's also because it was John himself who recorded the series of I am claims in his gospel narrative who recorded Jesus' own words years earlier, such as, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. This would have brought John incredible comfort. But Christ goes on. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Again, another staggering claim that Jesus is God. He is the God of Israel because this is a boast of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 44 and Isaiah chapter 48. Jesus is saying, I am him. I am the eternal one, the self-existent one. And when all of the false gods and all of the emperors, including the emperor at that time, Domitian, when all of those people have come and gone, I alone will remain. Verse 18. And... I am the living one, uh, which, which, which literally means I have life in my essential nature. <laughs> I'm just, I am life. I, I give life. It, life flows from me. 
And moreover, Jesus claimed, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So you say, wait a minute. The living God, so think about what he's saying, the living God in one part, but, but dead. How can that be? Well, that is the case because the living God became man and died on the cross for our sins. So God did not cease to live, but Jesus the man died. Or as Peter explains this in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Christ died for sure. But now he lives forever in a union of glorified humanity and deity. And then Jesus says this, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. In other words, Jesus has the authority to decide who dies and who lives and the timing of all of that. He is the one who has the authority to open and close the grave. He is the one who has power over death to admit people into the grave. And he alone can get them out because he has the keys. What a stunning description of Christ. There is no one before him. There is no one after him. There is nothing without him. He is alive from the dead. He is the living one. He is the victor. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, or chapter 2, verse 14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. That is the message to John and to these churches. They are about to see how Christ leads the charge to the end of history and brings all of the kingdoms under his rule, which helps sturdy them and stiffen them to suffer. And it helps them to continue to serve. And it gives value to their losses. They did not fear death nor Domitian. Jesus was king. Death was gain. And they were on the winning side. And especially for John, who may have felt like he was about to die, right? These words from Christ came flooding in to convince John that the time for his own departure had not yet arrived. Because Jesus still has something for John to do. And here we note John's third response. He was overcome by majesty. He was overwhelmed by mercy, the healing mercy, the strengthening grace of Christ. And now we find John was overtaken by ministry. John was overtaken by ministry. The next thing that happens is John is told to rise and to write. Verse 19, Therefore, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. So Christ says, I want the church to get this vision. So after his reassuring words to John, Jesus returns to the task at hand, that of directing John to write so that this glorious and victorious message could be carried to the seven churches of Asia. And what do we find at the end of each letter? We find this phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to, not singular church, but plural, Churches. Why? Because this message was intended to echo out of Asia, which means that we here at Faith Community Church need to get the vision out of the one whose voice is like many waters, who has all ability and all authority. And here's the final thought of all of that. 
John is ordered by Jesus to write a book, which is an amazing calling and commission, especially him being in his 90s. But there was still some life left in the old apostle. Or as Jay Adams says, he, was, he may have been wrinkled, but he's not ruined. So he's given this important task, which may be the greatest task that John was ever given. And the scene moves from worship to work. And it always does. When you, when you and I are truly overcome by Christ's majesty and overwhelmed by Christ's mercy, we will be overtaken with the desire to do Christ's ministry. R.C. Sproul said it this way, There is a pattern, a pattern repeated over and over in history. God appears, man quakes in terror, God forgives and heals, and then God sends. From brokenness to mission is the pattern for man. So why do we come here this morning? Well, we come to worship, right? We come to gain a proper understanding of who he is. We love him. We are thankful for what he's done for us. The cross is our treasure. His forgiveness is our possession. We come to worship, but when we leave in just a moment, we leave to do what? To serve, to proclaim to live for the glory of Christ because true worship always turns to work. In fact, if you think about this mistake that Peter, James, and John made on the Mount of Transfiguration, you may recall this in Matthew 17. Jesus took these three disciples up on a high mountain by themselves. Jesus' glory begins to shine through. There's this transfiguration, and they see, they see something of what John would later see 60, 60 years later. And then Moses and Elijah appear to them. And what does Peter say? Peter says that his suggestion is, I'll, ma- I'll make some tents, okay? I'll make one for you, Lord, and then I'll make one for Moses and then one for Elijah, and we can just stay up here. But the question is, what was happening down in the valley? At that very moment, what was going on there? Well, what was going on there is that the other disciples, they're down there struggling with demonic activity, Right? There was a, a man who came with a child who was demon-possessed, but they couldn't exercise the demon because of their weak and deficient faith. And so Peter, James, and John are up there on the mountain, but Jesus says, no, guys, we're not staying here. This vision that you've just seen, it should capture you. But now let's go down in the valley and share it and bring my power to bear on people's lives. And that's exactly what happened. And that is the pattern and the dynamic. Worship strengthens us so that Christ may send us with dependence upon him to impact a world without Christ. Worship must always lead to work. If it is true worship, it will produce godliness. It will lead to service. And John got that. John understood that. He understood that he was not a celebrity. He was a bondservant. And he was here as God's servant on planet earth to share what he knew and had experienced with others that they might know the glory of God in the face of Christ. Sam Storms writes, says, The greatness of a church is not measured 
by its membership, membership role or budgetary prowess, but by the size of the Savior whom it faithfully honors and passionately praises and confidently trusts. The big church, he says, is any church that boasts in a big God. Attendance and acreage notwithstanding. Amen? All glory be to Christ, folks. All glory be to Christ. Well, let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us again, how, how it has refreshed our hearts by its truths. How excited we are to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, perfectly holy and all-glorious, who inspires fear in us, who makes us tremble at the same time, reaches out to us unworthy sinners and touches us with compassion and says, yes, I am eternal God. Yes, I am the first and the last. Yes, I am the living one. Yes, I was alive. I became dead and now I live forevermore. Yes, I possess the keys of hell and death, but stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. You belong to me. Your sins are paid for. Your sins are covered. Now just do your duty to spread the truth of my return in my glory. So, Father, our, our prayer is that you would put into our hearts and lives that balance of fear and assurance and duty that we might be as we gaze at your glory and the glory of your Son transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.